I hope you're all still in the mood for some Philippians this morning. Um, and hopefully some of you took the opportunity to reread the letter during the week. Above all else, I'd really like to, to encourage you to keep on doing that and to let this explosive revolutionary text just take root in you and become a part of you. This morning, as we all reel from the changes that are going on around us in the world because of the financial crisis, we're going to ask, where is the real transformative power in the world? It's a continuation, if you like, from where we left off last week when we thought about the true reality, the true reality versus the deceptive siren call of materialism and self-centeredness, the red pill versus the blue pill. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, we thank you for all that you're doing amongst us in these days. We thank you that you're touching our lives. We thank you that you're changing us to be the people that you want us to be. And we pray, Lord, just now that your spirit would move amongst us. We invite you to speak to us, to give us a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus, of the risen Lord, and to touch our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The historical Jesus of Nazareth is actually God himself. He really bodily rose from the dead. Everyone, sooner or later, will acknowledge this. He is the real ruler of the world, not any other leader, president, political power, or system. In our modern world of toleration, our You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe, and that's okay. Just don't try and force it on anybody. World. In our what is truth, we can never really find it. It's what works for you. World. In our scientific, miracles don't happen. Certainly not corpses rising from the dead. World. In our democratic, equal opportunity, private, nobody's going to tell me what to do world. The words of St. Paul in Philippians 2, 1, 6 to 11, actually look outrageous. Paul makes statements which actually shake the foundations of our modern certainties, our postmodern uncertainties, and our liberal sensibilities. Because here are some defining statements about the nature of Christ and the underlying reality of the world, which have of necessity fundamental implications for our world, our lives, and all of us in the world. Jesus is God. He's risen from the dead. He's the Lord of all. Statements which pull the postmodern rug from under our feet and confront us with our response to these amazing, outrageous statements. Because if these statements are true then they have the most far-reaching implications for our world, for our lives, and for the life and witness of our church. This morning we're considering one of the most explicit passages of Paul's, and indeed in the the whole New Testament, about the nature of Christ. Theologians call this Christology. In other words, what it is we can know or say about Christ, who he is, what he's done, his relationship to God. And in this passage we have a great deal of of Christology. Some people think in verses 6 to 11 we have here a Christian hymn which was current at the time and that Paul used for his own purposes um, in his letter to the Philippians. Paul's purpose is clearly to point to the humility of Christ as an example to the Philippians' lives. 
Some people think that he cleverly inserts this hymn that was well known to them to help convince them of the point that he's making. If so, it's a very powerful witness to what the very first Christians thought about Jesus Christ. The reason it's thought to be a pre-composed hymn is that it feels like a self-contained unit. It seemed more like poetry than prose. It may be, of course, that Paul himself composed the piece, setting down what he believed of Christ in a way that's pertinent to the Philippians and the point that he's trying to make. And indeed, Paul is such a skillful writer that it may well be original Paul. Whatever the truth of it is, we have an amazing passage here, beautifully composed, whether you read it in the original Greek or you read it in English. It is quite simply breathtakingly profound. Written just over 30 years after the first Easter, it gives us a deep insight into what the very first Christians believed about Christ. When we read these verses, we can be in no doubt, actually, that the first Christians, which included eyewitnesses of the the man Jesus, felt that he had physically been raised from the dead and was himself actually Israel's God come in human flesh. The divinity of Christ was not something that evolved slowly over time and was eventually codified in 4th century councils. Actually, it was something that was believed from the very first days of the church. Now, let's have a look at this amazing passage, this Christ hymn, in a little bit more detail. Verse 6, he existed in the form of God. He didn't consider it equality with God, something to be grasped or exploited. Paul's first statement here is remarkable, to say the least. Straight away, he points us to the pre-existence of of Christ before the Incarnation. He existed in the very form of God prior to becoming human. Form here refers to God's heavenly image, his essential characteristics, his essential quality. But despite Christ sharing in the divine nature and essence, he didn't consider this to be a selfish possession, something to be seized or exploited. He didn't think that his divine status was something that he needed to take advantage of, to make the most of, so to speak. Rather, Paul tells us in the next two verses, the exact opposite is true. Verses 7 and 8. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and appearing in human shape. He humbled himself and became obedient as far as death, even death on a cross. Now, what Paul's getting at here is that instead of holding on to and exploiting his high divine status for selfish ends, if you like, he deliberately deprived himself and decided to serve others. He voluntarily humbled himself and descended to the very lowest position. Now, there's no sense here that he exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave. That Christ gave up equality with God. What we have here, rather, is the amazing assertion that his self-humbling was actually an expression of his deity. Christ didn't exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. Actually, he manifested the form of God in the form of a slave. Being God, equality with God, means not grasping, but giving away. The very essence of God is self-giving rather than self-serving. 
loving, not exploiting. From Paul's point of view, he's tapping in here to a rich vein of material in the Old Testament where God is the one who identifies with the suffering and affliction of his people. In the book of Exodus, he knows and sees their slavery. He comes down personally to deliver them. Of course, in Christ, it takes on a fundamentally new level where God himself takes on human flesh. The point Paul makes here is startling to his first century readers and no less startling to us. It is precisely in God's character to humble himself and to come down to rescue his people. That's what God is like. Both Christ's pre-existent glory with God and the self-humbling incarnation equally display what it means to be God. The extent of the voluntary humiliation of Christ is spelt out clearly by Paul here. He took the form of a slave. Everybody in the empire knew what slavery meant. Up to 20% of people were slaves. People who had no freedom, no rights, no privileges. And Paul here alludes to the words of Jesus that he had come not to be served, but to serve. And to his life, exemplified by mixing with lepers, Roman collaborators, prostitutes, suspected terrorists, the demon-possessed, the maimed. In other words, all those who were on the outcasts of society, the untouchables. The Lord of glory becomes the servant of all. He takes on human likeness. Simply, he became human. He came into the same conditions of human life like the rest of us. And as a human, as a slave... He had become as nothing compared with his pre-existent glory. Christ's humility and his obedience to the Father was unconditional and unlimited, and it went right to the point of death. Even, and this is really amazing to Paul's first readers, even to death on a cross. Now, we think very lightly these days of the symbolism of a cross these days. We're so used to seeing it, um, the, the, the shape of a cross at the end of necklaces, around church buildings, or something to adorn the set of a Madonna concert. The Roman writer and politician Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and abominable form of punishment. It was a brutal means of execution reserved for criminals and for the political enemies of the empire. It was too shocking and offensive even to be mentioned in polite conversation. Romans, Jews, Greeks all found it shameful and absolutely repulsive. And yet, here, it is the deliberate climax of these three verses in which Paul recounts Christ's humility. It is precisely in the most shameful of deaths that the Christian message comes to its climax and to its unique significance. Whatever else meaning Paul may want to attribute to the cross elsewhere, here simply he wants to highlight it as the crowning expression of Christ's humble obedience and service for others. Verse 9 begins the second half of Paul's Christ hymn. First half has dealt with Christ's voluntary and stunning self-abasement. 
The second now dramatically changes the scene from one of humiliation to one of exaltation. Unlimited obedience becomes unlimited vindication. Ultimate humiliation becomes ultimate exaltation. Abject servanthood gives way to sovereign lordship. Christ the slave, executed as if he were a criminal, is raised to the highest position in the universe. God highly exalted him. The verb that Paul uses here doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. And it literally means super exalted. God super exalted him. Actually, it's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the version that Paul would have read, to describe God's position in Psalm 97. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are super exalted above all gods. And here, highly significant for a Jew like Paul, he describes the man Jesus as having been raised to the same ultimate position as Israel's God. Furthermore, Jesus has been given the supreme name, the name above all names. Now, this language I don't think really means a great deal to us these days, but for Jews, the name of God was of supreme and ultimate importance. The name of the God of Israel was Yahweh, Jehovah. It was too sacred to be spoken. It was translated in Paul's Bible and our Bible as Lord. And it's the name that the Psalms tell us is exalted above everything. What is clear is that for Paul, Jesus has received this name. He has received the very name of God himself. To say that Jesus is Lord is, in fact, to identify him fully and completely with Israel's God. Yahweh, creator, sustainer of the universe, Lord of all. Paul then goes on in verses 10 and 11 to spell out the implications of this exaltation of Christ to the highest place and ownership of the supreme name. He now quotes Isaiah 45, verse 23, where God says, To me every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. For Jews, this was the position that alone belonged to Israel's God. Only God has such awesome authority. Only God is worthy of reverence and worship like this. But Paul here remarkably and explicitly assigns this place to Christ. He now is the one to whom every creature, human and otherwise, must own allegiance. There can be no mistaking the point that Paul's making here. Jesus has been raised to the highest position in the universe, to the place occupied only and solely by God himself, and he is to be identified completely with the creator God. And furthermore, Paul gives us sight of the early Christian belief concerning the implications of Christ's exaltation. Worship and allegiance is due. For Christians, the confession that Jesus is Lord is foundational and basic. For all others, that acknowledgement will ultimately have to be made. The arrival of God's rule on earth through the man Jesus will result in God's final rule on earth. This is not just a pious wish. This actually is an unstoppable certainty. And so universal worship is inevitable. Many will bow the knee gladly and willingly. God's enemies one day will find themselves doing so in shame. And the verse in Isaiah, next to the one that Paul has just quoted, Isaiah 45, 24, makes this clear. Now, Paul's description of 
Christ in this passage would have resonated with the believers in Philippi in a very particular way. And that is in stark contrast to the self-proclaimed ruler of the world, the one to whom glory is ascribed everywhere around them, and that is Lord Nero, the Roman emperor. Nero said he was the vicar on earth of the gods. He said he was the arbiter of life and death for the nations. Inscriptions from the time proclaimed him the lord of the whole world. Visiting kings said he was the lord and the god. As far as Caesar was concerned, every knee bowed to him. Every tongue confessed his lordship, and he backed it up with brutal military might and violence. The contrast with the god of the universe and with Jesus Christ, could not have been starker for the Philippines. All around them, in temples, monuments, coins, festivals, the glory of the emperor was proclaimed. The world was in no doubt who reigned, and the way to that power was through domination and brute power. Paul here takes exception to the pretensions of the empire. For him, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the one who is super exalted. He is the one with the highest name in the universe. He's the one to whom every knee must bow. But this Lord's way to power stands in stark contrast with Caesar and with every other dominating power in the world before or after. Caesar is but a pale and false imitation compared with this Lord. Because this Lord demonstrates the truth about where real power and real glorification lies, not in selfish ambition, not in muscling your way forward, not in shouting the loudest, not in elbowing your way to the top, but rather in humility, in servanthood, in generosity, and in love. In our passage, Paul has told us the story of Jesus Christ from the perspective of eternity. It contains soaring theology. But Paul's purpose here is very, very practical, to commend Christ's example to the Philippines. Don't be deceived by the way that the world seems to work, says Paul. Where is the real transformative power in the world? Is it in Rome? Is it in the White House? In Beijing? In London? Is the last word to be had by the violence and self-seeking of dictators, petty or otherwise, or indeed by the grasping power of the hedge fund managers? To whom will every knee bow in the end? To Caesar or to Christ? Making your way in the world is not, says Paul, by rivalry, conceit, looking out for yourself, Paul, that is the way the world is. Surely, don't we have to push and pull, make sure we stay ahead, look out for number one? If we're going to get anywhere, we need to, surely. In work, there's only room for one promotion. And we have to be ruthless in our dealings to get it. Well, that's all right. At home, we need to be just that little bit more right than our husband or our wife. No self-righteous husbands or wives here. In church, when people annoy us and frustrate us and get in the way of what we know is really the best way to do things, 
How do we react? Bullishly powering ahead, insisting that we are right? We can think of so many examples in our individual lives, in church, in the public arena, in the world, where the normal way of things is just to elbow, push your way forward, use coercive force if you need to. But actually, Paul says, there is a deeper reality, one that turns the ordinary way of things right on their heads. The way up is down. And the greatest transforming power in the world is love. How do we know this? Because this is the way that God himself took. This is the very nature of God demonstrated in the purpose in the person of Christ. He didn't grasp or hold on to his divine privileges. He humbled himself to the lowest point of servanthood and through this became exalted to the highest position. Have this mind amongst you, says Paul, which was in Christ Jesus. A mind that realizes there is greater transformative power in love and servanthood than there ever could be in hectoring, bullying, or abusive might. This, this is our God, the servant king. And he calls us now to discover with him the central truth of the universe, that our lives and the life of this world can be transformed by love, by serving others. Forget about your own interests, says Paul. Just do what Jesus did. Get down beside somebody and start serving. Many of us this morning, I know we're already doing that. And be encouraged that the greatest power in the universe, the power that raised Jesus from the dead and raised him to the highest position in heaven, is at work in us as we forget about ourselves and just serve. Sometimes it doesn't seem that way. When you're doing something nobody else sees, not very glamorous, not in the spotlight, sometimes you get tired, sometimes you get discouraged. You think, what's the point of it? But God's word to us this morning is to lift our heads again and to know that the God of the universe, the servant of all, is at work in our service. And the love that we show has the power and potential to make a real difference and to transform our world bit by bit. For some others of us, maybe we need to listen afresh to Paul's sermon on the servant king. Maybe we need to stop the self-promotion, call a halt to the self-absorption, stop entertaining ourselves to death. And we need to roll up our sleeves and get involved in the messy business of serving. There are plenty of opportunities, there's plenty of need, we just need to be willing. Where are you being a servant this morning? And if you're not, where are you going to start? To be a follower of Jesus is not simply to be a believer in all the right stuff. It's actually to follow in his footsteps as he steps down from his place of privilege and he gets involved with this needy world as the servant of all. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. When he comes again in his glory, the deciding questions for you and me will be, did we welcome the stranger? Did we clothe the naked? Did we feed the hungry? Did we give the thirsty a drink? Did we visit the sick and the imprisoned? In a world devastated by war, violence, selfishness, in a world racked by uncertainty, by doubt 
and anxiety. Paul points us to the amazing reality of the incarnation, God made flesh, and the power of Christ's serving love. And he calls each of us here this morning to have that very same mindset that Christ had, because in this, in humility and in service, lies the explosive, transforming power of God that can change our lives, change the lives of others, and heal our broken world. Our world often despises service and love and humility and peace as weak and ineffective. Christ's resurrection demonstrates that in fact the reverse is true. There is more transformative power in love and service than there ever will be in force, violence, and self-promotion. May God give us the grace to walk in the footsteps of the servant king. Amen.